All right. I think we are live. What's up, everybody? Other Life Podcast number 141. Can you believe it? 141 episodes. <sighs> Feels good. Glad to see everyone. Well, rather, I should say it's gl I'm glad to not see anyone. I hope you're glad to see me. You'll notice I don't have Ben with me at this moment. Ben is on a little road trip hanging out with his family and uh, I think he's got his girlfriend and uh, they're they're off enjoying themselves. And uh, Ben is uh, doing some work for me remotely, which is awesome. And actually, I'll give you some updates in a little bit. It's one of the segments for today. I'll give you a little a little life update as I like to do kind of uh, tell you about how things are growing and changing in my life and, and the business operations. It's pretty cool, pretty good stuff to share. And other news, we're going to talk about the books I've been reading. We're going to talk about St. Augustine's The City of God. This book is incredibly based, like beyond based, actually. It's, it's straight up exhilarating. I mean, it's old, so, you know, it takes a certain amount of patience to read. But, man, it's so worth reading old books. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this book. And then we're going to also talk a bit about Austin, some updates in the city, and, and what I've been up to. I've been meeting really cool people. I want to tell you a few little stories. And we're also going to talk about... This book by Rene Girard, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. I have never actually read too much Girard myself. So uh, since I'm helping Jeff Schellenberger do this course with, within the Indie Thinkers course catalog, I figured now would be a great time to catch up on my Girard. So I just finished this first book of Girard that I've ever read. I'm certainly no expert, but it was really good. And I think I can already see a few things that a lot of people, I think, widely misunderstand about Girard. So I want to talk about what I found most interesting about Gerard, and at least in that first book that I read, I'll try to give you the summary and a little bit of a book review. And yeah, and then I want to also end with talking about Bitcoin maximalism. This is a topic I've been thinking a lot about. I'm certainly no, you know, I don't present myself to the world as some kind of crypto expert because I'm fairly late to the game. I've only got really interested in it about a year ago, but over the past year, I have been basically obsessed with it intellectually and basically reading everything I can and really thinking a lot about it, thinking about it a lot from, from first principles. So, you know, I'd like to think I'm starting to have uh, a certain, you know, informed, independent perspective. So I want to talk a little bit about this phenomenon of Bitcoin maximalism, which I have some, some mixed thoughts about. So, uh, yeah, I'm doing the show by myself since Ben's not around, but I figured why not try to spruce things up a little bit. And, uh, you'll see in a minute, I have, uh, I have some new and improved, kind of graphic supplements for the show. So before we get into it, with that as a little bit of a preview about what to expect, I want to give you a very, very, very quick word from our sponsor. That's right. We have a sponsor now. It's IndieThinkers.org. IndieThinkers.org is the only private community in the world made specifically for what I call independent intellectuals, basically the new breed of academics and thinkers and writers and creators who are doing long-term serious intellectual work like you would see from a PhD student or even professors, but they're doing it outside of institutions and purely on the internet. Obviously I'm a representative of this, but there's now more and more people doing this. And one of my big wagers is that we're just at the beginning of, of a massive deluge of this new breed of, of public intellectuals. So since I'm, you know, not to toot my own horn, but since I'm at the forefront of it, just as a fact of, as a fact of the matter, I, have taken it upon myself to build a little institution of a kind on the internet. And yeah, we do a bunch of different things on a weekly and monthly basis, basically to support uh, people trying to do this type of work. And if you want to learn more, you could just go to indiethinkers.org. I would just say, if you're working on your own long-term intellectual project, then you might want to request an invitation and then I'll send you an email telling you more about it. And you can decide if it's, if it's the right fit for you or not. So that's indiethinkers.org. And I put a, I put a link in the show notes. So, uh, yeah, no, no harm in requesting an invitation. If you think that might, you know, describe you and that's our sponsor. So, uh, one of the reasons that I'm now might consider taking one or two sponsors, but I mean, honestly, I don't even think about indie thinkers as a sponsor because I built it. So it's not like I'm shilling a third party thing. You know, I, I, I built it from scratch and I believe in it immensely. So, um, I'm basically just taking an opportunity to share that with you on these podcasts in part because I have closed down my Patreon and that is something that we're, it's officially gone. It's done. And, uh, I want to give you a little bit of an update on that. It's kind of an in interesting move. 
and because I've done it in conjunction with a few other moves in my operations, which I think are pretty interesting and cool. So uh, that's going to be a topic for today's podcast as well. So um, if you want to see, check it out. I made this, uh, I spent a couple hours today making this. If you're watching on YouTube, you will now see, check it out. I made this little, uh, little roadmap for the topics to be discussed in the podcast. I think this just helps people when they tune in via YouTube, helps them know what what's on the agenda, what, what, you know, should they stick around or not? Because, uh, the update, the updates that are coming down the pike, you, a lot of you will have seen this on other shows, but I thought it was a nice little touch. We'll see if, 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 uh, people like it. And if you're listening on the podcast, it doesn't matter. It's just a little visual guide for people who are tuning in through YouTube. All right. So let's just get right into it. The agenda starts off with St. Augustine. Yeah. So this book, the city of God, I knew just enough about it to basically suspect that it had a lot of answers for me and the topics and the themes that I'm thinking most about right now. You know, I have a, I have a certain perspective on Christianity where in my view, and I'm not terribly educated, you know, Christian thinker, but just from my personal naive tendency, the way I think about Christianity is basically that Christianity is a kind of alignment between a sense of, of the truth of reality, a commitment to objective truth, and a kind of faith that the pursuit of that truth is also ethically good. And, and not only that, but also that to have faith on the objective truth and to just really invest oneself in the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth is, is actually one of the terms that appears in the Bible to describe God. Literally, that, that is the phrase that's sometimes used, the spirit of truth. That not only is that necessarily aligned with the good, but it's also aligned with a kind of pragmatic functionality. It does tend to produce positive results on yourself, on your communities, and so forth. And it's this kind of clustering of the true and the good and the effective that is, to me, kind of at the heart of the, the rationality of, of Christianity and why I believe it's, a, it's an absolutely intelligent and rational framework to to. to to commit oneself to the to the Christian faith, I I, I do think that it, it it goes beyond what's strictly rational. By definition, faith does that. But I do think that you can get all the way up to the decision to commit to a Christian faith th- through a a coherent rationality. There is a coherent rationality to it, and that's something that has always driven me and my interest in Christianity. And I've made these kinds of arguments here and there, and, and kind of developed that in some of my writing, but. I had known just enough about St. Augustine to know that I feel like he was, from, from what I understood, he was kind of going, he, he, had, he had a similar kind of attitude. And basically, picking up this book, I've only read the first two books of The City of God, but it's, I feel incredibly consistent with the perspective I just outlined, my own kind of personal, my own personal way of thinking about Christianity. He's basically just like a way smarter and way more cultivated and, and also obviously more devout and, and kind of holy, holy person articulating very, very consistent ideas, consistent with what I was just saying. So it's been exhilarating. I love this book and uh, I'm, I'm going to definitely commit to reading the, the whole thing. It's a slow, it's a slow going. So I'm only like a hundred pages in or whatever. It's like 700 page book or something like that. But uh, basically I want to share with you some of the most interesting ideas so far in just the first two books. So a little bit of background, you know, in a way, St. Augustine is arguably the first real Christian philosopher. That is, you know, the first heavy hitting canonical figure in the history of philosophy who is a Christian and whose philosophy is, you know, uh, through and through Christian. So he's writing at a time when the Roman empire is, is, in pretty bad disarray, all right? So the the kind of context for the city of God it would be something like the events of 410 when uh, Rome was was attacked by, you know, the Visigoths. You're probably familiar with, the, you know, the famous sacking of Rome by, by uh, the tribes. And so, yeah, I'm not like uh, some kind of expert on that. I'm not going to give you a lecture on that. But that's kind of, that's the context for, for St. Augustine's thinking and writing. Basically, the Roman Empire isn't doing so well. It's suffering in many ways. It's decaying. 
both internally, but also externally with, you know, um, the attacks from, from the barbarians like the Visigoths. Okay. And so a lot of people at that time were saying that Rome was suffering because of Christianity. It was because Rome had officially adopted Christianity not too long before people were saying, oh, look, this is a, this is all a negative consequence of adopting Christianity. This is why we're being attacked. This is why Rome is suffering. And basically, St. Augustine destroys these, these people making this argument. Like it's this massive, this book is a massive rebuttal to this kind of widespread meme at the time. And he just goes through with just devastating, excruciating specificity to show that th this idea is false. It doesn't make sense. But here's the cool thing, folks, and this is why this book is so exhilarating. He does it like a science, like a social scientist. It's, it's a very, very rational. It's not, you know, he's not making claims that are, you know, uh, supernatural. He's making claims that he's basically using causal inference, like the legitimate protocols of, of scientific rationality, of, of, of Bayesian reasoning, basically, to say that that's a false argument. It doesn't make sense, social scientifically. And... Then he goes on to also make the argument that, in fact, if you want to talk about the consequences of religious beliefs, he says all the evidence suggests that Christianity is the religion that produces positive consequences in terms of society and, and individuals. And it's really interesting to read because, you know, I talk about this kind of stuff sometimes in my own writing and something a lot of people have, have pushed back on me about, people on Twitter or people who read my newsletter or whatever, a lot of people have pushed back on me saying, oh, no, Justin, you can't reduce Christianity to a kind of practical usefulness that's, you know, heretical or whatever. And yeah, I get it. You can't be a Christian only because you think it's going to have good effects on you. And it's just a rational decision to be a Christian to get the good effects. No, that's true that that you can't do that. But that's not what he's saying. And that's a very, very naive way to understand what I've said on this topic as well. Basically, the way that I would under the way that I would summarize St. Augustine and the way I would articulate it myself is to say that one cannot believe in Christianity to obtain good earthly consequences on oneself. But if one believes in Christianity, then one expects to observe positive consequences on oneself, not because the Lord is going to give you some miracles to make your life happier or better. Although I suppose Christians believe that could happen, uh, just like God could also, uh, you know, smite you. That's a separate. That's a separate thing. I think whether you believe in that or not. That's I, that is a separate topic. The point is, Saint Augustine seems to believe, as I seem to believe, and I don't think anyone here is going to criticize Saint Augustine for being like a heretic. He's, you know, one of the one of the most venerable Christian fathers in in the entire history of Christianity. He himself is very clearly making the argument in the first two books already that Christianity is a religion that tends to have positive effects on people. He says it very clearly. I think one of the sections in like book two is something like the literal title is something like how Christianity improves the health of peoples or something like that. So, so this is not heretical to say this at all. And so I feel very vindicated because I've written, I've written stuff to this effect and um, people, you know, there's a certain breed of kind of rabid like overly doctrinaire Christians today who actually don't even know what St. Augustine and, and the great church fathers even said. And they'll kind of bark at you if you, if you say something that sounds like it might be a false idea, but no, actually there's, there's a very legitimate way of understanding this. And it's one of the most, I think, impressive and significant data points in favor of the, the rationality of Christian faith, that there, there is something unique about Christianity compared to all the other religions, where if you believe in it, positive things generally happen to your health, to your well-being, to your attitude, and to your general effectiveness in life. And what's so exhilarating about St. Augustine's City of God is that he actually expands this much more dramatically. The whole idea of the City of God now we'll kind of open up to, to the larger argument of the book is that there are basically two different cities. That's, that's the argument. There are two different tendencies, if you will, in society. One is the city of God and the other is called the, what he calls the earthly city. 
And basically, he doesn't say this explicitly, but to use my own kind of modern social scientific vocabularies to kind of understand what he's saying, he's basically saying that there's a kind of clustering going on where the good and the true and the beautiful and the effective and the healthy, they, those things tend to cluster. And then the bad, the dishonest, the false, the unhealthy, the pathological, the evil, those things tend to cluster. And basically what he's saying is that over time, these two worlds polarize. They become farther and farther apart. They, they, they become more and more separated and distinguished. And I just love this because it, A, seems really true, right? We're living more than 1,000 years after St. Augustine. And look at the world around us. It feels so incredibly correct. And I think actually digital technology has a way of accelerating precisely what he's talking about and making it even more crystal clear. What do you think is going on when you look at, you know, all of the kind of left-wing people who are like aping idiotic ideologies that they don't even really understand, accusing people of all kinds of ridiculous things, who are themselves the, the people who are doing the accusing, these kinds of um, people who are obsessed with kind of earthly power, whether it's like gaining socialism over America or uh, redistributing wealth or, uh, in, you know, correcting uh, the, the entire history of, of racial injustices. These types of crusaders who are obsessed with earthly power, basically, and they're mostly atheists. They tend to lean very strongly in, in favor of atheism or agnosticism. If you actually look at their lives, they're often very, very depressed people. They are not really flourishing or succeeding very well in their own lives. And they're also quite, quite sad um, a lot. A lot of them are. And it's like, exactly what St. Augustine is talking about more than a thousand years ago. And then you look at like the, you know, look at people who are thriving right now in the contemporary moment. It's like, you know, look at like the trad life people who are like, you know, exit the chaos of modern media. Don't try to get power. Just try to have a healthy family, have a few kids, live a good life, go to church. You know, this kind of like trad life revivalism is actually correlated with happier, more functional lives. And those people are actually, in, in many ways, they seem to be doing better. And that's highly correlated with a kind of religiosity. And I mean, in my own case, like I'm, my own life is an example of this because I used to be like a hardcore social justice warrior. And my life was incredibly, incredibly sad. Like I was in a very, very bad pit of just confusion and despair. And I was with the, in that with like my friends. And it was only, and, and it was specifically when I realized like, Okay, this there's something systematically just corrupted. There's something there's something deeply, deeply rotten, and it's kind of affecting everything. And I knew that I had to get out of that. And you know, I won't go over the whole story. I've I've talked about it a lot, but it was like I progressively started to just stop worrying about like getting power, stop worrying about um, impressing people, stop worrying about being cool to the in group, and which is essentially kind of mimetic mimetic dynamics, which we'll talk about a minute in a minute, actually, when we talked about Rene Girard. And it's like, once you, once you like, just are able to see, no, okay, I'm just going to try to live a good life. I'm going to try to be a good person. And I'm only going to care about like the people, the people I love, who, like my family. And I'm going to worry about just taking care of myself, being good, being true, being honest all the times and being healthy. And health is a, ma a major factor here, right? Like, look at the look at all of the like nutrition people and the 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 weightlifting people, and it's like, why why is weightlifting such a big meme among the like trad life slash like Christian slash um, you know homesteading slash circles on the internet? It's because these things are correlated. These things tend to attract each other. They cluster. And they cluster in positive feedback loops where if you do one of them or you do two of them, then you do three of them. And then you're doing better and better in a kind of nonlinear fashion in all aspects of your life. Whereas if you um, indulge in the lies and the deceptiveness and the, the accusations against other people and the, the lust for earthly power, whether that's to like impose your own favorite version of government or whatever, those things tend to correlate. And then they go, you, you spiral downward. Uh, in a nonlinear fashion. And that's basically what St. Augustine is saying. Like he didn't have the vocabulary of nonlinearity. He didn't have this kind of like cybernetic mental models that we have today, but that is actually how things work. You know, there are sometimes powerful attractors that, that, that suck into them anything 
kind of around them. And he's basically saying that the good and the evil are these two polarized attractors. And it's, it's just a very brilliant argument. And I think it makes even more sense if you bring to it a kind of contemporary scientific rationality, you actually understand that this guy is a, 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 an excellent philosopher and even a kind of proto rational thinker, a kind of proto scientific analyst of Christianity is, is how St. Augustine reads to me. And man, it's just fire. I just love it. I highly recommend if you, uh, you know, really want to get deep into, um, you know, really thinking about why Christianity is true. It's a challenging book for sure. It's, it's, it's a hard, long slog, but I found it to be pretty rewarding pretty quickly. Like I'm only a hundred pages in and yeah, it's, you know, old books are boring and hard to read on a certain level, but I found that within the hundred first hundred pages, I, I could get a sense of what he's really getting after. And it's just, I find it extremely refreshing and exciting. So I highly recommend it. There you go. All right. So that's St. Augustine's City of God. I'll probably be talking about it more as in future episodes as I continue to read the book. And now let's go to the next topic. We're going to talk about uh, Rene Girard. So this other book I've been reading, well, just finished, I should say, is Rene Girard's I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. And like I said, I haven't read a lot of Girard in my life, so and much at all, actually. So of course, I know about the meme ideas, but you got you to gotta go deep into the books yourself if you want to really understand anything. And this book was awesome. The first thing I would say about this book is that basically, I think if you're a Christian, to, it, let's say you're even just leaning in, towards Christianity or you're just kind of curious about Christianity. I think that's a lot of people in my audience, maybe not a ton of legit Christians, but people who are kind of favorable to it, interested in it, curious about it. If that's you, I highly recommend this book because basically one thing that jumps out at me from reading this book is that Gerard is very fashionable right now. A lot of people talk about how they like Gerard and how Gerard is, you know, has such explanatory power over the current moment. But what people don't tell you is he's incredibly Christian. He's not just like, you know, he doesn't just write about Christianity. It's a very Christian book. It's basically a kind of anthropological vindication of Christianity. He's basically like Gerard is a straight up Christian and, and it's, it's not just kind of dancing around Christianity. He's basically all of his philosophy is basically making a very strong anthropological argument in favor of Christianity being true. So it's it's way more explicitly Christian than I realized. And so I think this is kind of interesting because if, you know, all the people out there floating around who say they like Gerard and they think Gerard is so cool and smart, you know, he's kind of high, he's fashionable right now. Um, I don't know if they actually realize how much saying that really kind of makes you a Christian because the dude is a legit Christian and the, and it's a very, very strong argument. So I'll go over for you just basically kind of the two of the key ideas. There's a lot of rich nuance in there, but two of the key ideas in this book. The one is that, well, basically what he says is that the entire history of human societies before, before Christianity, before Christ was basically like every other society before Christ they just would murder people for no reason, and then they would lie about it by making myths that treated the victim positively. So this is kind of like the one of the big anthropological arguments in the book. And so he basically says that Christianity was this kind of revolution in 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 society. It was, it was and and of course that's that's a fairly w widely known idea. Even Nietzsche agreed to that with a different angle, of course, but. It's a very specific argument and it's fascinating because basically what he's getting at is what he calls the single victim mechanism, which is where when mimetic desire kind of escalates to an intolerable degree, right? Okay, I'll, I'll rehearse the whole thing for you from scratch. If you're interested in this, you should check out my podcast with Jeff Schoenberger. Uh, we talk about all this in detail. But basically the idea is that desire is mimetic. This is step one. So the things that you want you mostly want them because other people want them. It's the fact that other people want them that is the core of what makes them desirable to you. And then once you have that dynamic, then there's an intrinsically conflictual nature and desire. If mimetic, if desire is mimetic, then the, it, there must be zero sum aspect to it. And you see this in things like status games, right? Um, you know, think about who gets beautiful women or, who gets, you know, uh, the biggest monetary rewards in society. There are essentially at, at, at many junctures, you know, um, only one person can get something. And basically, 
because of that kind of intrinsically zero-sum nature of mimetic desire, sometimes society gets kind of filled up with these mimetic rivalries to a degree that's unsustainable. That just, it's, 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 it's like a pressure cooker is, is building up with more and more pressure and it's about to explode. And instead of exploding, there's a kind of pressure valve or release system in societies, which is what he calls the single, the single victim mechanism. So when mimetic desire reaches a boiling point, someone in the community semi-randomly will just get pointed out as the, the cause of it all. People will just make things up about how this particular person is the cause of all the social conflict. And that person is the scapegoat, right? So mimetic desire leads to intrinsic zero sum conflict, which leads to the single victim mechanism as the kind of social dynamic that then results in the scapegoat phenomenon. Okay. That's a, a super quick and dirty little uh, schema of, of, of the Girardian philosophy. And so basically Christianity, according to Girard is the first time that human society kind of realizes this and inverts it, basically stops it, puts it, puts an end to it. Christianity is the decisive realization of this problem and the decisive institution of a totally different way of processing social relations that if you follow it, if a society follows it, it is guaranteed to stop the conflict and the violence of this vingle, uh, this, the single victim mechanism. And so basically, yeah, the implication is that every, all of human life before Christ was basically just societies kind of ignorantly and unawarely, is that a word unawarely? I don't think so. Uh, in, in a way that they were not even aware of, they would basically just get into these um, heated, stupid, meaningless conflicts. And then they would basically lash out on individuals randomly. And what's really interesting also is that this becomes hidden. This is part of the process is to systematically cover this up. So not only were all societies before Christ violent and kind of randomly brutal torturing and inflicting violence on random individuals for no reason that didn't deserve it. Not only was that a feature of every society before Christ, but then even more satanically, they, as part of the process, they would later write about that victim and talk about that victim in a way that was nice to them and kind of made them a deity. And the reason is Gerard says it's that in a way the, the victim does actually solve the problem. So when you, when you kill the scapegoat, it actually does decrease the social tensions across society. And so in a way, the, the victim actually does do a kind of godly service for, for the good of society. And, and so the, the people who killed the scapegoat, the society that's guilty of that heinous crime kind of both pays homage to the power of that, that, that martyr to actually help them, but also it's selfish in that they don't want to go down in history as, um, a senseless, insane, murderous mob who, who just, uh, you know, killed actually what turned out to be a good person. So it's there, there's this systematic kind of, um, uh, ideological function or, or propagandistic function of, of myths. And this is a pretty profound thing because a lot of people today, you know, myths, a lot of people talk about myths in a good way, right? Um, you know, you talk about people, people say this today all the time, like we need new myths, right? We don't believe in anything more, any anymore. Western society needs new myths because it's good to believe in things and myths bring people together and they're big visions for people to believe in. No, you don't want myths. Myths are systematically evil and violent and satanic. That is what Gerard says. And Christianity is kind of the opposite of a myth. It's an anti-myth. It's a concrete, specific moment where the illusory nature of the mimetic schema is laid bare once and for all through the crucifixion. The crucifixion is, Gerard calls it a trap that was set for evil. It basically, Christ basically baited 
evil and evil did what it did, right? They accused Jesus. All the people got pulled into it, like Pontius Pilate and even some of the disciples, right? That's the, that's the single victim mechanism. Everything is kind of gathering and snowballing to, to attack and put the blame on an innocent victim, in this case, Jesus Christ. Um, but this time was different. This time was special. It was a trap set for that evil such that when it happened, it would be revealed for what it was for the first time ever, whereas all previous times it was hidden by myth. All right. So this is this is crazy. This is fascinating, right? This is crazy. It's really, really, really powerful and cool stuff. So I really liked it. Uh, that's my quick little summary. Um, I could say a few other things, but um, yeah, one final thing I'll say is that, you know, the one interesting thing I took from it was that accusation is itself evil. So, so one of the words in the Bible for Satan is uh, the accuser is what he's called. And so there's this kind of idea suggested by Gerard that, that anytime you're accusing anyone of anything, you're basically, that's kind of the spirit of Satan kind of coming into you. And I really, really like that because look at today, like look at, you know, um, obviously you see it with the, with the woke people who like scapegoat anyone they can get their hands on. But now you're also seeing it with the anti-woke people. And I think this is just so cringy. And I think a lot of smart people are falling into this trap. You know, like if you look at like the Quillette crew and the James Lindsay crew and these different factions that are emerging, they've basically built these massive brands around accusing the accusers. And that's a bad path. That's a trap. You don't want that. That's, that, that's, that's, that really in the long run ends up being just as bad. And so this, this idea from Gerard and, and from Christianity has really, really concrete implications uh, for like how you think about your own projects and what's worth investing time and energy in. And, you know, not to toot my own horn or anything, but probably because I am a Christian, I mean, I'm, I'm without even really thinking about it, I made a strong decision when I first kind of like got some public notoriety for whatever, like pissing off the woke people and, and being like a kind of anti-woke person or whatever. I made a strong decision that I wasn't going to cultivate some kind of like anti-woke crusader brand because that that's just it's just lame it's not and you're essentially participating in the same economy that you are trying to reject and so this is why i like deleuze this is why i like christianity this is why i like gerard and this is why i like even things like urbit like what all of these things have in common is like you don't attack the mainstream in any head-on way because once you're attacking something you're getting roped into it basically as deleuze says you want to find a line of flight you want to become imperceptible which means carving out a really novel space that the mainstream people don't even really understand and they don't need to understand it. You don't, you're not against them. You don't need to do anything against them. Um, you can get power that way, but that, and that's, and that's the, that's why people do it, right? Like the reason Quillette is so big and the reason people like James Lindsay are, are so like growing so fast is because yeah, on the internet, you grow what, earthly power way faster. If you're against something, if you have a team and you're against some other team, without a doubt, you, you grow faster, um, for obvious reasons. It's mimetic, it's mimetic desire basically. Um, but then you get pulled into the trap, what, what Deleuze calls, uh, the dream of the other, you get pulled into the dream of the other, and then you're screwed. You really are. I mean, sure. You maybe have more money and power in the short term, but then you wake up one morning when you're 50 or 60 and you're like, what is this thing that I represent? Whereas like for me, I'd rather go, I'd rather grow slower in absolute freedom and independence. And that is the Christian ethos. That's the Deleuzian ethos. That's, you know, that's projects like Urbit. All of these things do have a kind of, of similar logic of just pursue the truth as creatively and as freely as you can, as independently as you can just pursue the truth creatively. And if you do that, you'll find yourself off the grid of contemporary legibility and contemporary political conflicts. And that's where. That's how you escape mimetic conflicts, I believe. Anyway, so uh, I think that's all in Gerard. I think that's all in, it's, it kind of goes back to St. Augustine as well, you know, um, something I, I talked about a few minutes ago. So that's how I see it. And yeah, so basically I, I would strongly recommend this book. Also, that's my quick little uh, book review. Rene Gerard, I see Satan fall like lightning. And of course, if you want to go much deeper on Rene Gerard, we are offering a course, a full eight week course with uh, Jeff Schullenberger will be the lecturer for that. It's within the Indie Thinkers course system. We now have like five courses and uh, I'm super proud of them. People seem to really like them. You can go to gerardcourse.com if you want to check that out. And uh, even if you don't want to take the course or maybe you don't need a full eight week course, 
uh, you can just download the syllabus. We made this kind of uh, logical curated eight week reading list basically. So if you want to understand all the key ideas of Girard, but maybe you don't even want a full course or something like that, you can just grab the syllabus from girardcourse.com and then just get download the books or buy the paper books um, and read those selections in the order that Jeff suggests you read them. All right, so that's totally free. You can just go and grab that if you want a, a curated reading list to yeah understand Gerard on your own. And then of course, if you want to talk about those ideas with like a whole bunch of other people over eight weeks, then yeah, check out gerardcourse.com. All right, so moving on then, shall we? The next thing I wanted to tell you about is just a few little updates from the, the move to Austin. As most of you know, I moved to Austin about five months ago now. And uh, it's been awesome. Honestly, it's been it's been basically everything I dreamed that it would be. We have built up this little studio here. And when Ben is here, we have a lot of fun doing these shows together. He helps do the computer stuff, which is a big, a big help. But, you know, even when he goes away, it's fine. I can do it myself. Um, and Ben also some news here is Ben. I'm now paying him like properly. He's giving me 20 hours a week every week and I'm paying him a, a living wage basically. So no, not basically straight up. Like I'm paying him a, li a living wage and ends up, ends up being, um, you know, a good wage basically. And I don't want to like, it's not my prerogative to, to tell details. Uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to blow up his spot unless he feels comfortable talking about it. But, uh, yeah, I'm paying Ben and I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm very, very, and I'm just happy to do it. I really like Ben. He's been a very, very loyal helper. And even when I wasn't paying him very much at all, um, I consider him like a, a first class member of this team that I'm building. And uh, yeah, I got nothing but love for Ben. And it's, my, it's absolutely my pleasure to be paying him. He just graduated university. So good for Ben. Shout out to Ben for that. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to tell you all that I'm now paying him and that's just a, a, it's a big step up for the other life project. You know, um, I'm very, very just happy that I, I, I'm making enough money with indie thinkers that I can do that now. And with the courses that I can do that now. And, uh, so Ben, Ben is not any longer a starving intern. He is, um, a, a, a decently paid produ producer. Let's call him. He's the producer. Let's call him the producer of, of the other life podcast. I think that's, uh, I'm happy, happy to give him that title. So yeah, shout out to Ben. That's a cool little update. And uh, I'm glad he's out having fun with his girlfriend. Um, what else? Um, I've been meeting awesome people. Um, basically, the best thing about Austin so far is, is, is the people. Like I came here because I, I, I hoped to find a lot of badass kind of independent, renegade, outlaw types of people who just, you know, they don't want the glitz and the glam of Miami, but they just want freedom and the true American spirit of, you know, trying to live a good, honest life, trying to exit, you know, the chaos of the big, of the, of the coastal cities, at least, and all of the, of the fakery and the, 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 the status games and the, the pursuit of, of, you know, earthly power in favor of just living a good life, maximizing freedom, maximizing, sure, wanting to earn money for, for you and your family, wanting to provide for, for your family, but doing it in a way that's maximally free and kind of off the grid of the, the coastal civil war between, you know, the, the, the lefties and the, you know, let's call it the, the, you know, Republican establishment. I wanted to find people who just wanted to escape that in favor of, of, of taking freedom for this, for themselves. And it seemed to me that Texas kind of represents that and Texas is an attractor for that. And basically it just turns out that I was right. It absolutely turns out that I was right. I've been meeting so many awesome people. I got to meet Cody Wilson a couple weeks ago. I hung out with him for a few hours in his, in his office here. And, uh, I really like that guy. He's really, really just, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a very thoughtful guy. And I really liked his style of thinking. It was very interesting to, to hear how he thinks about the world. And I just found him to be very thoughtful and very, you know, he's a careful thinker and he surprised me in, in many ways with some of the references, like he was citing Baudrillard and, uh, he's got, he's always got several projects on and, uh, he's got a whole little, he's got a whole little system of operations, which I just find very interesting and very forward thinking 
And yeah, very, very much in the spirit of freedom and in, in the American spirit of freedom. And so that's just one example, you know, and he's also this, this real kind of outlaw type of figure, like authentically. And, and I just, that's the kind of person that I want to know, you know, and I want to, I want to kind of, how do I put it? It's like, you ever watch Western movies? In some of the Western movies that are set in the Civil War, I was just watching, for instance, The Outlaw Josie Wales. It's, it's a really good one. I really like this one. I don't like all of them, honestly. Some some are very boring. The Outlaw Josie Wales is actually uh, quite high energy and, and quite quite fun to watch, even for a kind of modern sensibility or contemporary sensibility. In these in, in the in the Westerns that are set in the Civil War, it's like there's the Confederates and there's the Union, right? And the country is kind of um, torn by this violence between these two aggregates, right? But then there's the outlaws and the outlaws are the ones who basically don't want to fight for the union and they don't want to fight for the Confederacy or which one did I do? Either one. They don't want to fight for either one. And so they just go off into the forest on their horse or they go off into the desert on their horse and they just, they just try to find a path. They just try to make it work. They try to find friends. They try to avoid enemies. They try to make some money. And they basically just are constantly trying to protect their own freedom. They're kind. They're trying to stay out of a box. This is this is what what Clint Eastwood is like in uh, in the Outlaw Josie Wales. Clint Eastwood plays Josie Wales, and this type of of hard boiled American man just basically is committed to never submitting to someone else's box, and. This is the essence of the outlaw. It's also the essence of the philosopher, I believe, the true philosopher, the, the person who's, who, who has it in their blood, has it in their bones, this kind of drive to seek the truth at any cost, no matter how socially unpopular or no matter what the consequences. The outlaw, the philosopher, the true artist, these people um, have a certain dimension in common. And I think that that dimension is basically just trying to, at all cost, never let some aggregate or some group or organization or power contain them. You're always trying to escape the box. And that's what I, that's the kind of the spirit that brought me to Austin. I hoped I would find people with that kind of what I would consider a, a deeply American spirit. And I've just been right. It's been it's been really, really good. Um, not just people like Cody Wilson, but also, you know, all kinds of other people like uh, Dryden Brown of the Praxis crew. Dryden was on my podcast a, a few months ago. I also got to meet people like um, Jonah Bennett, been hung out with him a couple times now. He's the founder of Palladium Magazine, really smart, really smart guy. I like him. Um, but then other people like you, some of you might know this girl, Bridget Fetissey. Uh, maybe some of you watch her. She's pretty big on YouTube. She like DM me a couple weeks ago and uh, we're going to get together at some point. She's moving to Austin or she might already be here. And uh, yeah, so just. Basically, and then my friends like Barrett Avner and, and Alex Lee Moyer, it's just like it basically is coming. It's coming to fruition. So that's my little update there on Austin. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, there was a shooting recently, which is not cool. I don't know anything about it. I didn't read anything about it, but Aria just told me, Aria texted me this. Um, oh, one other thing I can tell you. Or maybe two quick things. No one's wearing masks anymore at all. So that's cool. Um, but also I host, I actually hosted a little like private dinner the other night. It was kind of an exclusive little shindig. Um, I only invited a very specific set of people. Um, basically on the one hand, I invited artists and creators, basically my friends who are kind of making a full-time living as creators in one way or another. So people like Barrett, Alex Moyer, I, I, I brought out, um, Jack, the perfume nationalist came a few other people like that. My kind of, you know, um, my underground avant-garde friends here in Austin. And then I also invited out my, my entrepreneur and investor friends, my founders, my founders and investors, basically, because these people don't know each other at all, but they have a certain kind of underlying shared interest. Maybe I think it was my thesis anyway. I think it is kind of that, that basic American spirit of, of trying to build things independently outside of power structure, outside of the dominant power structures, just to maximize freedom and, and maximize um, independent potentiality. I think that's kind of what they all had in common. And in a way, founders and investors are very similar to creators because at the end of the day, the core commonality is the, the creation of new things, the bringing into the fruition of things which don't already exist without permission, just because you see it can be done and you want to do it. 
and you do it whether you like whether other people like it or not. That's kind of what investors and 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 founders have in common with artists and creators. So I thought, you know, I'm one of the only people who like has a foot in both of these worlds. So I wanted to do a a, a little dinner uh, targeted to that, and just so just last weekend actually, um, I actually I bought eight hundred dollars worth of barbecue <laughs> and I bought like a proper dinner, and um, I, I got some friends to who had a house to host it. And had about 25 people out. So I'm very, I was, that was very cool. I, I was very, it was, it was my pleasure and my honor to uh, provide a very nice little dinner to a bunch of friends um, who didn't know each other. And actually some productive relationships already have emerged from that. I think actually a few investments took place at that dinner, which is just awesome. I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm very, very, very just happy to see it. So that was my little way of saying, you know, Austin, I'm here, you know, and, uh, I'm not rich yet, but like my operations are doing just well enough that I'm, you know, I need to be start being, I want to be more generous, you know, um, in the two years that I left academia, I basically, um, have been like living on a super shoestring budget, haven't certain, you know, haven't been making a ton of money. It's taken a lot of time to build up. And now I'm like, certainly not rich yet, but I'm like at a point where I'm not poor and I feel pretty confident that everything is going to continue to keep growing because I don't know why it would stop since it's growing now. And so now I want to start being like, I don't know. I just feel, I feel like at the time has come, I have to like, just start, you know, I've been selfish for the past two years is what I'm getting at. Like I've been frugal and, and, and a miser basically, because I've been anxious about money and wasn't sure if things were going to succeed or not. And now like things are just su succeeding just enough that, um, yeah, every now and then I can, I can spend $800 to buy a bunch of barbecue for like 25 of my friends for, you know, a pr particular like pro social purpose. So that was, that was fun. That was cool. That was my honor. And that was just like my little way of saying, Austin, I'm here. And, uh, you know, I want to make, basically I want to make serious long-term relationships with badass people. And that requires investing in people. You know, you have to, everyone has to like be generous to each other. And so that was a, that was a cool little thing and, and kind of a first in my book. I've never, I've never really hosted that kind of thing. And so I felt, I felt good about that. And it was, it was very exciting. I think some cool po potential relationships are already emerging from there. So, you know, it's not like Miami. Austin is not like Miami. It's not like people want to show off. It's, it's like people want, I believe, and what I want anyways, I want to build long-term positive sum games with people of really good character where, where we're all very generous and we're all truly invested in each other's success and, and, and promoting kind of the American ethos of like true independence and, and freedom. So yeah, that's cool. So very, very good on all fronts in Austin. And, uh, all right, let's see the other bit of news is that I closed down my Patreon. It is gone. I also closed down my discord server. It is gone. They're officially gone. This is the end of an era folks. And the reason I did this was because Basically, I just have too many platforms to manage. I really want to focus on IndieThinkers.org and making that uh, as amazing as possible. I want to give that my full attention in terms of like community management, basically, and, and building out um, like really valuable things for people. And then um, also, I just basically, I don't need donations. I don't need patron. I don't want that kind of patronage anymore. I want to build like a really successful standalone operation that just makes money by add, by giving value to people in a fair exchange. Uh, and Patreon allowed me to do that, but now I don't need it anymore. So it felt kind of grifty to just have it up uh, when I wasn't doing that much for it and I didn't really need it. It felt like a grift. So um, it started to feel like a grift. Um, I think I you know, did the right thing and just promptly decided to uh, shut it down. So yeah, I cut myself off from one income stream, uh, which is kind of, you know, not a lot of people do that. I didn't have to do it. Probably could have let that sit for a long time, but felt like the right thing to do. So I'm happy I did it. And the other big thing is that I basically started an urbic group. So now if you do want to be part of the other life community and you want to kind of follow my themes and the stuff I talk about and research and my writings and the podcast, there is still a community for that. It's just on urbit. And the good thing about that is it's free. I don't need, you know, it's like, um, you do have to be on urbit though. That's the, that's kind of the hard part. And yeah, it's a little hard to get on there. Um, it's a little weird it might be a little intimidating for people, but, um, I'd rather it be kind of exclusive and. Um, I just like Urbit. I've written about that. I wrote a I wrote a very long blog post recently about why I think Urbit is actually much cooler than people realize and why it might be bigger than people realize potentially. Who knows? But um, yeah, so Patreon is gone, Discord is gone, and I basically c collapsed them into one 
Other Life group on Urbit. So if you're on Urbit, you can check that out. You can actually go to exit.otherlife.co if you want to. That's kind of an on-ramp to the Other Life group on, on Urbit. But I'm not offering much there. I'm not do at the moment. I have some bigger plans. I want to I want to basically build a DAO. Um, and this gets kind of complicated. I have some some big ideas on this, but um, uh, like some of you, I've given I've been giving out my own ERC twenty token. Uh, the the ticker is Life Money Sign Life. Uh, it's that's an Ethereum token that I I started, and uh, I've been giving that out to some people. So uh, yeah, I have some bigger plans. But that's more of a long term thing. And for now, it's just a free group on Urbit. If you're on Urbit, you just join it. Um, if you want more information, you go to exit.otherlife.co. You do need a planet, um, so I'm assuming that you have a planet when I say it's free. Uh, if you do, if you do need a planet, you have to pay for that because there's a it, it costs money to spawn them basically. In any event, just wanted to basically share that with you. The Patreon is gone and Discord is gone. I hate Discord honestly. I mean, the the damn thing is called Discord. Like, it, I don't want Discord in my life. I want Concord in my life. I, I want like calm tranquility. I want to think in a in a relaxed, peaceful way. I don't want to like log into this gamer thing where it's like million notifications everywhere and 20 different communities are like nonstop frantic discussion I, that horrifies me i never really liked discord so i'm just glad to kind of wash my hands of it it was an interesting experience to host a discord there was there were definitely some cool people who came through there and shout out to everyone i kind of met through there uh, and definitely big shout out to all the patrons over the years thank you so much for you know supporting me i could not be where i was without you and uh in the past few in the past week i kind of gave them i gave the patrons a bunch of stuff um as a parting goodbye so anyway, that's just a little bit of an update. Um, Urbit is cool. Uh, check it out if you want. Exit.otherlife.co. All right. And the final thing I want to talk about today is I want to talk about this phenomenon they call Bitcoin maximalism. I've had the good pleasure of meeting a few Bitcoin maxis in my life. Even here, um, there's this guy, Justin Moon, who I'm buddies with here. He's, he's a cool dude. I really like him. And I, in a way, I am a Bitcoin maxi myself. The, the idea of Bitcoin maximalism is simply just that... Um, I mean, the strongest version of it is the belief that Bitcoin is the only legitimate cryptocurrency. It is the only one that matters. It is the only one that will matter in the long run. And it's the only one that really has unique value. And basically all of the other cryptocurrencies are, some would say scams. Nicer people would say they're just a casino. That's kind of the more polite way of saying it. So Bitcoin maxis believe that, yeah, sure. Okay, maybe they'll buy some Ethereum. They'll buy some... Solana, they'll buy some sushi swap, whatever, honest speculation, just because they think it might go up in the short term. So yeah, you can play around with those other tokens as a kind of casino if you want to, sure, whatever Bitcoin maxis will say. But in the long run, they have no value whatsoever, and all value will ultimately accrue to Bitcoin only. Um, that's, I think, a fairly charitable way of, of summarizing the Bitcoin maximalist position. And it's very interesting because I agree with that on one level, but I have a more nuanced take, which I'll break down for you in a minute. The reason I'm talking about it right now is, is basically because if you, if you look at the Bitcoin community, it's definitely starting to get a little weird and I wouldn't call it toxic or I wouldn't moralize against it. I have no, I have no moral objection to it. Like this is what some people are saying, like, oh, these people are evil. They're mean, they're nasty. Like, no, I don't care about that. I think, I just think that personally in group dynamics, are always a threat to clear and honest thinking, basically. And so this guy, Robert Breedlove, who is a fairly well-known kind of Bitcoin guy. So I would say most people would put him in the Bitcoin maxi camp. I, I think he would generally even, uh, for a while anyway, he probably would have identified with that. He recently just, <laughs> this is funny. He he just said that he was curious about BitClout, which is this new Twitter alternative that runs on its own cryptocurrency bitclout and he just tweeted that he was curious about it and he wanted to do some research into how it works that's literally all he said and the bitcoin maximalists who he kind of generally rolls with they jump down his throat like i've never seen before. i mean it's, it's for such a simple thing i mean it's pretty crazy like the kind of negativity and the hatred he got for just saying that he was going to look into bitclout and that's when I was like, okay, this is definitely reaching a kind of uh, degree that is, like I said, I'm not going to moralize against it. I'm not saying, oh, you know, they're so mean. They're so nasty. This is this is so vicious of them to, to cancel anyone who speaks out against. No, who cares? I'm just saying it's dumb and it's lame when you are so dogmatically obsessed with a certain idea that you can't allow your friends 
to look into other ideas. That's that's a, a clear sign that something is rotten, something is wrong, something is kind of psychologically and sociologically uh, bad and, and rotten. So when I saw that, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, there is definitely a pathological kind of Bitcoin maximalism, which I do think is false. Well, moralize, I just think it's dumb. It's, it's, it's false. Um, and I think what's going on basically is a combination of factors. It's partially just old fashioned in group dynamics. You know, when you're, when you're in a tight knit group rallied around a cause, you do get kind of overtaken psychologically in a way, anything outside of that becomes, it starts to look evil, but you know, what also there is, is the, there's incentives here, right? You know, um, if you really do believe in Bitcoin and you buy a lot of Bitcoin and you have your whole kind of like net worth kind of invested in Bitcoin, well, then it's the old school in-group dynamics now multiplied by serious, serious incentives to keep up the party line and potential costs from fraying from the party line. So, yeah, I think that's not a very sophisticated theory. That That's pretty standard fare for group dynamics. If you add incentives to basic kind of in-group psychology, then yeah, you're going to get pathology. And I think even just watch, if you watch some of the videos from like the Bitcoin conference, it's just, it's cringy. Like a lot of it is cringy. A lot of it is like, um, this really just lame kind of, uh, patting each other on the back, hurrah, hurrah, kind of cheerleading. And yeah, there's definitely smart people who I respect and, and who I know in that, in who are Bitcoin maxis, but, um, the, as a, as a whole. It's definitely, I, I, it's definitely like, I basically all I'm saying is I don't want to be a part of that culturally or sociologically. I basically am a Bitcoin maxi in the specific sense. Here, I'll give you my kind of qualified understanding of it, how, how I see things. I do believe that Bitcoin will absorb all of the monetary premia, meaning it's money. All of the moneyness in crypto will go exclusively in the long run to Bitcoin. I do think that it's the only one that can sustain the true uh, store of value function. And that is because of its unique architecture and its unique, uh, pol political implications. Really. I do believe in that sense, I also would affirm that the Bitcoin white paper is the thing it's, it's the revolutionary kernel of the entire cryptocurrency phenomenon. It is the, the most important key discovery is the Bitcoin white paper. And therefore the Bitcoin technology is in now and in the long run, it is by far the most important thing kind of politically, socially, and in some, in, in some sense, historically, let's say. And I, and I do think the moneyness will be absorbed by Bitcoin, but I do think that other tokens will exist for a long time and, and maybe even in the long run on that. I'm a little, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm maybe agnostic about that. I would say that at least in the short, at least in the medium term, there are going to be many, many blockchains and there are going to be many, many token projects. And many of those are going to be valuable and legitimate and doing really important, significant, valuable work on the world. I do believe that. So, so in that sense, I'm not a kind of rabid Bitcoin maximalist. Um, I think basically where the Bitcoin maxi kind of culture goes wrong is that they conflate the monetary premia that Bitcoin will maintain because of its very unique uh, architecture, they conflate that with, therefore, everything else is a scam. And that's, that's, I think it's just increasingly, it's increasingly clear that that's false. I think it's increasingly clear that basically different tokens can, can perform utilities basically. So, um, if you look at, you know, something like Aave or any of the DeFi platforms, it's like the tokens are what allow a certain type of activity and value to take place within the platform. That's all you can't, you literally can't do that with Bitcoin. So therefore you make a different token and you within a platform or within a community or within a system, there can be an internal token. That is how activity and value gets created and circulated within that community. And then it exchanges with other tokens outside of that community. And that's fine. Even if those tokens don't have a monetary premium as Bitcoin, I do think will probably absorb that in, in the long run. So that's my take. That's my, that's my. I, I would, I'm generally a Bitcoin maxi in the first sense, but I think that you're going to have tokens, other tokens and blockchains for a very long time that will have legitimate value and do important and valuable things on the world. Maybe what I would say is that in the very long run, possibly all of DeFi and all of the other things you can do with blockchains will just get built 
at in the Bitcoin ecosystem, but that's just going to take a long time because the technology, because the because of the nature of how Bitcoin uh, BTC was was constructed, basically. Um, and so, I think that's a long enough time scale that it's kind of moot point, frankly. Um, time will tell, and I'm, I don't necessarily have super strong priors on on whether or not like all of DeFi will get built around Bitcoin also, and then that will take over in the long run. Maybe I would just say maybe. I, I don't think it's easy to have strong convictions on that. All right. So that's my take on Bitcoin maximalism. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Go subscribe to the podcast on your phone if you're not already. And please, if you would, leave a review on iTunes. I'd be super, super grateful. That really helps other people find the show. And yeah, that's pretty much all I got. Thank you to our sponsor, IndieThinkers.org. If you're working on any independent intellectual projects, serious kind of long-term work on more highbrow or sophisticated stuff like philosophy, science, or, you know, cultivated fine arts or things like that. And check out Indie Thinkers. That's, that's a community that's been built for this type of person. And there's not really any other community like that at the moment. So yeah, and people really like it. It's growing. And people tell me every day that uh, it's getting better and better. And it's really working for people. So you can find more about what it does at IndieThinkers.org. And you can request an invitation there if you want. There's a link in the show notes as well. All right, folks. Thank you so much for hanging out. As always, Other Life Podcast. Over and out.